tell us why the church exists. And so before we get started on that, though, let me just pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Uh, Father God, thank you for the chance to be here, to hear uh, your word, to speak. Uh, God, I pray that your word would speak to us today, that we would hear from your Holy Spirit. Each of us come in here with our own struggles and challenges and experience with the church. God, some of us may have been burned by the church. We pray that you would speak in spite of that. God, some of us have been encouraged by the church. We've been uh, grown up in the church. It's been a positive experience. God, help us to uh, go even deeper in in what it means to be a member and a participant in your church. God, in all things, we thank you and we ask for you to be glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. So growing up, my family did not always attend church. Uh, so some of my very first memories of church were when I was about 10 or 11, and uh, I was living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time, in the middle of the desert, uh, and I can remember visiting a Baptist church one Sunday morning. And I don't remember a lot about this experience. I can remember a handful of things. I can remember that people were much more dressed up than I was used to. I can remember that the carpet was red. Uh, I don't remember anything about the sermon, which is humbling for someone who speaks regularly. Um, but, but the thing that I remember most clearly in my mind is that church was very boring, like extremely boring. <laughs> yeah, I heard an echo here, an amen, though. Uh, I, <laughs> I didn't understand why anybody would want to spend a few hours on a weekend going and doing this. I mean, I could be at home playing Nintendo. I could be outside playing soccer or swimming. Why were we burning away our time singing songs with a bunch of stuffy strangers? This is what I thought. I, I didn't understand, and so I hated going whenever my parents would go. And so I was a very strong-willed child. Uh, God is paying me back with my lovely daughter, Harper. Um, <laughs> And whenever we would want to go to church, I would refuse to go. And so I'd have like a big fit, and either I'd stay home, my family would go, or I would just sit in the car. And in Phoenix, that is a commitment. It is a commitment. And um, I just, I, you know, I just didn't love it. I didn't enjoy it. And so uh, I would just stay home because I thought it was too boring. Uh, later, when I was in junior high, I had kind of a different experience of church. Uh, I had a good friend, my best friend at the time, his name was TJ, and TJ and I would hang out just about every day. I'd ride my bike over to his house, we'd play basketball, we'd swim, and we'd sleep over at each other's houses, and one of the nights I slept over his house was a Saturday night, and that night, TJ's mom came into our, uh, TJ's room and was like, hey, you guys better be ready early for church in the morning, and I was like, oh, I don't know about that, um, but TJ's mom was not the kind of mom you said that to. If TJ's mom said to do something, you were like, yes, ma'am. Um, <laughs> And so Sunday morning came, and we head out to TJ's parents' church, and this church was totally different. It met in a strip mall. Uh, it was much smaller than the Baptist church my parents sometimes attended, uh, and it was not boring at all. Uh, this was a full-on gospel-singing Pentecostal African-American church, okay? <laughs> and so for a white kid from the Phoenix suburbs, this was very different than anything I'd experienced. There was upbeat music, there were people with tambourines, big hats, there was dancing and shouting, and it was definitely not boring, but it was confusing, okay? It was confusing. <laughs> and some of my confusion was definitely cultural, for sure. I, I didn't know some of the ins and outs of African-American religious culture. Uh, but aside from even the cultural differences, I still didn't understand why, what would prompt people to sing and dance so passionately. Uh, it was overwhelming, and it didn't make sense to me. And so for me, my experience of church was boring and confusing, that, that would summarize what I thought of church as a child. I was either bored or confused. And I didn't understand, and as a result, I was bored, I, I was confused, I just didn't want to go. And you might feel the same way today, it's okay. <laughs> Some of you today may wish you were sitting in a hot car in Phoenix, but uh, 
However you got here, whoever guilted you into come, or for whatever reason you're here, I'm glad you're here. I hope that we can uh, redeem your experience of church. I'm sure if you come regularly at Coastside, you don't have the experience that I had. But it wasn't for me until years later, after I gave my life to Christ, uh, that I began to enjoy church and understand why people might want to go. And so my hope today is that we might answer a little bit of that why question. We might understand a little more about why we do and why we go to church. Okay, what does the church exist? What is its purpose? What is the church for? That's some of the questions I'd want to look at today. And so we could spend a bunch of time uh, talking about our own experiences. I wish we could have like a back and forth and hear people's experiences. It's always really interesting to hear people's different experiences of church. Uh, but really today I want to focus on what God says about the church. Uh, not, not one of our own experiences. We all have different experiences. And so I want to hear from God. And if you don't even believe in God, I want to read what the Bible says about the nature and the purpose of the church. And so today we're going to be looking at four metaphors that the Bible gives us to describe the church. Four metaphors that tell us what the church is and points us towards why the church exists. All right, does that sound good? All right, good. Before we jump into those, though, really quickly, I want to make a few clarifications about church, because as soon as you start talking about church, it gets confusing. The Bible says a lot about church. So a couple clarifications, and then we'll go into those four metaphors, all right? So first is there is a difference between the church and a church, okay? There's a difference between the church and a church. The church with a big C, capital C, is sometimes called the universal church. And this refers to all people, past, present, future, anywhere in the world that have or had or will have faith in Jesus Christ. The, the universal church is a collection of all of God's people throughout all of time and history and geography. That's the universal church. But there's also this thing called the local church, a little c church. Uh, the, the local church in Coastside Church is a local church. The church that I'm a lay pastor at, Redemption Church in San Francisco, is a local church. Uh, and a local church is a particular gathering of a group of members, a smaller gathering of that larger universal church at some particular time and in some particular place. And the Bible talks about both this universal big C church and this uh, local small C church. And many of the letters that are written by Paul, they address both of these audiences. They are written to individual churches, like the church in Colossae, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi. But the letters, they were meant to be circulated. They were meant to be read by the big C universal church. And, and so there's this connection and this overlap between a local church and the universal church. And we're going to talk about both of these just a little bit today. A second distinction I want to make, I want to clarify, is that the word that we read church in the Bible basically means gathering. Uh, it's a Greek word, ekklesia. It means grouping together or gathering or assembly. Uh, the closest English equivalent we have is something like congregation, like a group that regularly congregates together. And, and it's not a particularly specialized word, though. This word, ekklesia, was used in all different kinds of contexts, not just religious in the Greek world. Uh, it's this very general word that the biblical authors take and infuse with sort of spiritual meaning and significance. And I want to note, though, that that word does not mean building, which is what church often means in the U.S., right? Um, I work for an organization, my full-time job is working in an organization that starts new churches. And so sometimes when I meet someone that doesn't have a religious background, I say, well, I work for this group that starts new churches. They're like, oh, interesting. I, you know, my uncle's an architect. Um, or like, you're an engineering, huh? How's that going? And uh, I can assure you, I'm not someone that you would want to be in charge of building a building, okay? Uh, but there's this misunderstanding, this understandable mistake because of the way that we use the word church in English. And originally, church or ecclesia didn't mean building. It just referred to a gathering, a collection, an assembly of believers. A church can meet in a building, but biblically speaking, a church is not a building, okay? 
Uh, In the New Testament, people gathered in homes as well as larger venues, like in the courts of the Jewish temples. Uh, Eventually, Christians, they moved forward and they designated particular buildings for church activities. And so there's nothing wrong with having a, a church building. People have buildings all over the world. They have for a long time. But it's, a building is not necessary to have a church. This is just an important thing, especially for us Western Christians to remember. Because in many countries, it's, it's fairly common for believers not to have a building, to meet in homes, to meet under trees like they do in some parts of Africa. The building, it's not essential. And I love this phrase that helps describe the essence of a church if you're trying to keep this idea in tension. It's this, a church is not a building where, but a people who. For instance, a church is not a building where we worship, but a people who worship. The church is not a building where we preach the gospel, but a people who preach the gospel. Okay? There's a lot of things you could fill in there. Uh, That third distinction that I want to make is that a gathering together of a group of Christians, just some Christians getting together, does not necessarily make something a local church. Okay? Uh, There's more than a church than some Christians just getting together. A group of Christians who get together um, could be a meeting of that big C, universal church, but it's not necessarily a gathering of the little C local church. Does that make sense? A few Christians hanging at Beach Monkey Cafe drinking smoothies on a Sunday doesn't mean they're going to church, okay? Uh, The local church, it has a number of things the Bible says it's supposed to have. It's supposed to have elders and deacons to take offerings, to administer communion, to preach, to instruct people in the scriptures, to protect its members from false doctrine, even to exercise church discipline. There's a lot that goes into a local church. But at the very least, the local church is more than just some Christians getting together, okay? So with those distinctions started, let's bring it together. And this is something I just wanted to uh, put in bold here for you guys. It should come on the screen. God calls all Christians to be part of both the universal church and to play a role as active members of a particular local church, okay? And that's why I want to talk about this today so that we can, so that you can and I can fulfill God's hope for us as member both of that universal church and a participant of a local church, in your case, Coastside here. Being part of the universal church is pretty straightforward. Anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ and trusts him as their Lord and Savior becomes a member of the universal church when they believe. They enter into that family. But being a part of a local church, it's a little more involved. Uh, When the the Bible first came out in the New Testament, uh, when the church first started, it was pretty simple. If someone became a Christian, all of the Christians in a given city were part of a single local church. But because of time and cultural differences and church history and theological differences and growth and global migration of different people groups, there are now all different kinds of local churches. And there are all different kinds of ways that churches have determined who the members of their church are. There's some churches that have very informal ways of understanding who their members are. Anybody that shows up uh, for a, a while as a member. There are churches that have much more formal ways. They have processes and classes and signups. Maybe you've been a part of something like that before as you, if you've been a member of a church. In any case, God desires for all Christians to be committed members of a local church. And I want to look at a few metaphors that describe what the church is and why it exists to help us be good members and to help us understand why the church exists. All right, these are the four metaphors we're going to look at this morning. There's more in the Bible. Four metaphors that point to mission. The first is the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Uh, Sometimes it's good to begin with the end in mind. Let's turn to the book of Revelation, very end of your Bible. Uh, Revelation 19, 6 through 8. 
Uh, I'm going to be bouncing around because we're looking all over the Bible. I apologize. I usually love to like get in one text. And so uh, if you feel like your fingers are getting tired, the words will come on the screen, uh, but you're welcome to try to keep up with me. Sometimes I go fast. I'll try to slow down. Uh, Revelation 19, 6 through 8. It's the very last book of the Bible and the book of Revelation. It describes this vision that the apostle John has of the future. And John describes what's happening at the end of time, and he describes the church, that big C universal church, as the bride of Christ meeting in marriage with her husband, the Lamb, which is Jesus. The book of Revelation, it's this really unique kind of ap- like apocalyptic uh, genre of literature, and it has all these metaphors, and it's confusing sometimes if you read it because of the richness of the imagery. It's, it's like a hyper-realistic uh, dream, and it has a lot of symbols, but let me read what it says. This is Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." The idea of the church as the bride of Jesus is also seen in the book of Ephesians, uh, when Paul compares the relationship of a husband and a wife, which is supposed to be defined by sacrificial love and submission, as being similar to the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, Jesus himself uses this imagery in the Gospels on a number of occasions. But you may be asked, like, so how is the church like a bride? I know for, for a lot of guys that may feel awkward to think of ourselves as part of this bride. Uh, may have some kind of macho thing going on. Uh, but, but let's explore it for a second, okay? Uh, first thing we could recognize is that a bride has pledged her faithful allegiance to her groom. This is true of the church. We pledge our allegiance to Jesus. We promise to be faithful to him and to him alone. And the Bible, it often uses the uh, language and the idea of adultery to describe sin, to, de- uh, to, to describe uh, adultery to use the kind of to describe sin or idolatry or worshiping other gods. And we may not think of our own sin as that kind of thing. We may not think when we sin, I'm committing adultery against God. But in some ways, it can actually be quite helpful because sin, it's not just breaking rules. It's not just missing the mark. It's committing adultery against the one that we have pledged faithful allegiance to which leads to our first clear purpose of the church. If you understand the church to be the bride of Christ, you'll see this, that the church exists to be faithful to Jesus. The church exists to be faithful to Jesus. Uh, Additionally, that metaphor of the bride, it speaks to intimacy in a relationship. The church and each member of a church is portrayed as having an intimate relationship with Jesus. Sexuality itself, it's given to us as humans to show the power of intimacy And in the context of a loving and self-sacrificing marriage, sexuality is this powerful tool to create and express intimacy between two people. And when we think of the uh, church as a bride awaiting our marriage to this bridegroom, we can think of a metaphor as both a call to intimacy with Jesus and a promise to even greater intimacy and eternity with him. Uh, The image of the church as the bride of Christ, it affirms that Jesus loves the church, that he delights in us. Uh, as a great husband loves his wife and delights in her, Jesus, I think sometimes we can, we can get down on the church. Maybe you feel that way, even if you've had a negative experience. But it's important to remember that Jesus loves the church, that in spite of our sin, in spite of all the ways the church might fail, in spite of our weakness, Jesus delights in his bride. He doesn't just tolerate us. He loves us. Some, some, someone here needs to be reminded of that today. Okay, second metaphor that points to mission, the church is the pillar of truth. The church 
is the pillar of truth. In Paul's first letter to uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, you can maybe move there if you'd like, uh, right after Paul gives Timothy instructions about how leadership is supposed to happen in a local church, he says this. This is 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, and here you go, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Those are two metaphors given here for the church. It's called the household of God. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the church is also called a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, we would rarely call someone a buttress of something. Um, My eight-year-old son would laugh at that. It's too close to like an anatomy joke, right? But we might call someone a pillar of their community, someone who has strengthened and served and upheld and supported their community which is what a pillar or a buttress does. They support or they literally hold something up, right? They, they keep something high, they keep something stable, which in the case of the church, what they're holding up is the truth. And what is the truth that the church holds up? It's the truth of the gospel. The church holds up the truth of the gospel. That's another purpose of the church, to hold up so it's stable and high, the truth of the gospel. And for Paul, especially in his writing to Timothy, that phrase, the truth, it's kind of this shorthand for the idea of sound doctrine, correct doctrine, essential truths about God that are to be believed and protected. You find it throughout his his teaching. And and these truths are rooted in the scriptures, and Paul instructs Timothy regarding the truth. And so earlier in 1 Timothy, he says this, uh, I'm going to read from 1 Timothy 2, and listen for the word truth and immediately what he describes the truth as. I'm going to read a little, it's a little bit longer section. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for all kings and who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And here it is. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. As a church, we are continually called to proclaim the truth that there is one God, that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. That is the gospel message. This is the truth that we uphold and share in sermon, in song, in conversation with one another. This gospel is the foundational truth upon which everything we do as believers in the church is built. Uh, If you've ever wondered, why do churches always talk about Jesus or the gospel? There's lots of things they could be talking about in the world. Uh, It's for this reason that we're called as local churches to support, to betress, to uphold these gospel truths. Third metaphor that points to mission, the church is the household of God. Church is the household of God. We read this uh, description of the church as the household of God in 1 Timothy 3 uh, just a couple minutes ago. Paul, he also fleshes out what he means, and he writes to the local church in the city of Ephesus. Uh, in this letter, Paul, this is Ephesians, he's writing and he's addressing this tension between people who are, exist in Ephesus in this church. In Ephesus, there were Jewish people in the church, and there were Gentiles in the church. And Gentiles, if you're not familiar, they're non-Jewish believers in Jesus. And they're kind of a different ethnic group, different background. And so there's this racial and cultural tension between these groups. And here's what Paul writes to them as the household of God. So then you are no longer, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, there's a few metaphors in the text, including the household of God. But essentially, Paul is saying that in spite of your difference, because of your common faith in Jesus, these two different kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, are now combined into one new family. Citizens of a new nation, members together of a new household. It's like two families coming together in a blended family. And and this is part of what it means to become a church or to be a church. The church is this new family for all kinds of different people. I want us to remember that the church is a new family for all kinds of different people. And that may make some of us uncomfortable. Just like the early church, we had uh, challenges and it brought people together in this revolutionary way. It makes us uncomfortable. People from Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds. Uh, The church today is called to be this new nation, this new household, this new family, which brings together dramatically different people. People with different political views, people with different, uh, from different races, people from different socioeconomic classes. The church is called to bring these people together in a new family. So whatever someone's background, ethnically, culturally, politically, socially, when they join the church, they become a part of God's family. And if you're a Christian, they become a part of your family. Which is why things like racism or sexism or nationalism or ethnocentricity, all they should be so offensive to us as Christians. Because we're a part of this new family that transcends these divisions. We have brothers and sisters of every background. And we have this calling in light of that to become an inclusive family that draws in people from these different backgrounds, calling them to faith in Christ as they believe and including them as full members of our family, being hospitable to one another. Additionally, because we're part of this common family, we have a responsibility to one another. Just like we have responsibility to our biological or our legal families. And so this should come up too. The church cares for its members practically, just like a family. It's another thing the church is to do because we're a household. Uh, This was and and is obvious in countries where Christians are persecuted for their faith, where people are disowned by their families when they trust in Jesus. Uh, I recently, we used to live in Japan and I have a number of friends who are there, and I was recently talking to a friend who's a pastor there, and he was talking about a young woman in their church whose parents were disowning her because of her new faith in Jesus. And this girl was now living in the home of another one of the church members, which in Japan is a big deal. Houses are small, it's expensive, because she no longer was welcome in her own household. But luckily, she had this new family, so she was safe and she was protected. And in a society like ours in the Bay Area, where Christianity is uh, just one of a number of things, there's still a need for a Christian family in the church. We, we all still need practical care and support. We need people to, that we can go to when we have real needs. And so if you're single, you need people to hang out with, to have meals with, to care for you. If you have kids, you need babysitters, people to share the load. Uh, as we age, we need practical support as well as people to engage and encourage us. And so whatever stage of life we're in, we need family. And God designed the church to be a supportive family for all who believe. Practically, also spiritually, we need support for us, and we need people that we can support. And so the call for the church to care for one another like a family is part of the reason why so many churches have small groups or home groups in addition to Sunday services. I believe you guys have that here as well. Uh, it's, in, in this kind of uh, model, it's, it's much easier for us to care for one another because we can actually get to know someone and know maybe some of the challenges they're facing. 
So I'm a part of a small group. I've been a part of two in our church. Um, and in the last couple of weeks, just uh, we, there's a couple things that have happened. Uh, my, my daughter and I, we helped a single woman in our church who has a physical disability uh, disassemble her furniture so she could prepare to move. Uh, people in our group have stayed overnight at my house when my wife and I were out of town to watch our kids. We've cooked meals for one another. We've prayed for one another all in the last few weeks. Very practical things that we're doing for one another because we live together as this new family because we're members of a church together. And in fact, this is actually one of my very favorite things about being a Christian, that there's almost no place in the world that you could go and not have family. It's an amazing freedom that we have because of that. There's, there's almost no country, no city you could move to. If, you're, if your plane crashed and you landed there and you, and you said you were a Christian, there are people who would take you into their home who would treat you like family because of your common faith in Jesus. It's an amazing, freeing thing for people to welcome you as a brother or a sister. How great is that privilege? And so there's no doubt that taking care of one another is hard, uh, that community life together can be frustrating. I don't want to paint like too rosy of a picture and then we get disillusioned when things are hard. But, but if you have a family, like family's hard, right? You, you get in fights with your brother or your sister or your kid. It, it's the same in the church. It's, it's, I don't want to overly idealize what it means to be a part of a family. But it's good. And we need to care for one another because God calls us to be a household of God. Fourth metaphor that points to mission, the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. This is probably the most common metaphor used for church in the Bible. And it's basically the idea that the church is like a physical body, right? Has many different body parts. All these different body parts have different functions. All of them are valuable, but they're controlled by the head, which in, we read as Jesus time and time again in the Bible. He is the head of the body. Uh, he is the head of the church. But I want to read a little bit about what the body means. This is from Romans 12, verses 4 through 8. For as in one body we have many members... It's like parts. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, like preaching or, or speaking God's truth, in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in his generosity. The one who leads with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So while Jesus is the head of this body, we all have a role to play as members. We have all been given gifts. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have a gift that this body doesn't need. I really mean that. There's not, not one of you here that thinks, I don't really know what I have to contribute. You're wrong. You've all been given gifts. You all have things that you could contribute. And the church is not a place where a few key pastors or staff do ministry while we watch. The church has a role for everyone. The church has a role for everyone. And some of these roles will be more public uh, and specific. Others will be more private and general. But all of these roles are critical to make the church and the body function properly. The text in the Bible makes clear that God has gifted every member of this church, every one of us. And I want to ask, how has he gifted you? How has God uniquely gifted you? Or what opportunities might you be able to jump in and serve at this church? If you're to be a part of God's body, we have to be using our gifts to serve and to further the mission of the church. And we should all be able to answer the question, right? Like, how am I serving my church that I'm a member of? Uh, you can't, and if you don't know uh, what that is yet, if you don't have a place to serve or you don't know what your gifts are, go and talk to Rob or one of the leaders here. Ask them to help you find a way for you to use your gifts. And if you feel like I'm not gifted at all, it's like all of us can do some pretty simple things, right? Like most of us can move chairs. Uh, if, you know, most of us are responsible enough to watch kids. Maybe not all of us, you know, they'll check you for that. But we all can contribute, 
And, and it's not Rob's job to do everything. I just want to say this. I, he, didn't, he didn't ask me to say any of this, just so you know. Um, it's not his job to do everything. It's his job to help you, to help members serve and use their gifts. Uh, Ephesians 4.11, it says just this. It says this, and God, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to do all the work of church because that's what we pay them for. No, no, it doesn't say that, right? It doesn't say that. It says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we need to get in the game off the sidelines using our gifts for God's mission, okay? Think about this for a minute. If the church is Christ's body, that means that not only do we have a role to play, we literally are his representatives to the world. Whatever mission that Jesus had, we now have. We are his body, his hands, his feet. If people want to know what Jesus is like, they're going to look at us, his church, his body. And so we need to know in our minds, why did Jesus come? What purpose did he have that we now fulfill as his body? I want to give you two things that are very explicit in the Bible that are reasons that Jesus himself said about why he came. There are two moments when he was asked or revealed why he came to earth. Let me give them to you. This is Luke 4, 18 through 19. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I love hearing about the drive you guys were doing to get wheelchairs together. That's exactly what a church should be doing. God sent Jesus to be an agent of justice and good in the world. The poor are to know that there's good news because of Jesus. The imprisoned are to know that there's good news because of Jesus. The blind, the hurting, the oppressed are all to know that there is good news because of Jesus because they've seen it in the church. We are not just offering a vague spiritual hope, but practical and real world examples of a better world. And today, people need that desperately. And there are people in our society, even a society as wealthy as our own, that need to see that there is hope and meaning in this world. And the church is an agent of gospel-centered justice in a broken world, okay? The church is an agent of gospel-centered brokenness, of justice in a broken world. So that's one of the reasons Jesus came to earth, one of his missions he's given us, his bride, his pillar of truth, his household, his body to fulfill. And there's an additional second reason that Jesus came to the world that can be found in Luke 19. Jesus, again, he says in himself, for the son, this is Luke 19, 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus also came to bring eternal salvation to everyone who is far from God. He describes himself as actively seeking, going out, putting forth effort to save those who are lost. And that idea of lostness without Jesus, it's offensive in our culture today. Uh, not very many people like self, uh, design, you know, self understand I'm lost without Jesus. But if we believe Jesus, this idea, it's not just true for people out there. It's true for each of us. I, I love uh, Amazing Grace, you know, the most famous hymn in the English language. And it proclaims in its opening lines, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. It's out of the overflow of our own experience of God's amazing grace in our own lives that we join Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. As Christians, it's because we see ourselves first and foremost as those who were once lost, 
And because of that, our care and our, uh, for others, our desire to seek other, have others know Jesus, it doesn't come off as condensa- like con- condensation, but compassion. And it's because we know that God sought and saved us in spite of all of our sin that our sharing of the gospel with others is love and it's not arrogance. It's when we understand the gospel for ourselves that we begin to see not just our own need for God, but our need for a church community to help us follow God. That was the difference for me that changed how I viewed church. When, when I began to see myself as a sinner in need of grace, I began to see my need for other people too. And my eyes and how I viewed the church changed. And I probably would, if I would have went to those same churches now, would have seen them differently. Because the church is a place that seeks lost people and helps them find salvation in Jesus. And if we're one of those people, we understand intuitively why we need a church. And so in closing, uh, I shared a lot today about God's ideal for the church. We know uh, that the church universal and every local church falls short of those ideals. We're very aware of that, right? But after 2,000 years, the church still exists, and it continues to grow in number around the world. This may surprise you that even though the church has shrunk in the West, the church has grown, exploded in the world. Especially in the global South and in Asia, in spite of its failures and inadequacies, the church's mission continues to move forward. Isn't that amazing? For 2,000 years, the global church across all these different cultures with all these different obstacles has continued to grow and persevere through persecution, through conflict, through its own seasons of error and dysfunction, God's church continues to exist and thrive globally. Whether you like it or not, it's a pretty compelling testimony to the resilience and power of this entity, the church. And Jesus, he speaks of this resilience in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus, he's talking to his disciples, and he says this about the church, and I love it. He says to his disciple Peter, this is Matthew 19, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's quite the promise from Jesus, that not even Satan himself could destroy the church. Jesus says this is because the church is built on a solid foundation, a rock that cannot be moved. But what is that rock? It's a a question that people have wondered that gives the church strength to weather such storms. I want to read the three verses before the one I just read. This is Matthew uh, 15 through 18, and then I'm going to reread verse 18 as well. Jesus says this to Peter, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Did you catch it? The rock that Jesus builds his church upon, it's the gospel. It's him. It's his identity. It's the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. The church strength doesn't come from itself. It doesn't come from our programs. It doesn't come from our great things we figure out to do for one another. It comes from Jesus. And it's only because, and it's only when the church is centered on Jesus and the gospel that it becomes strong and resilient. It's when we personally and as a church confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that we get to join his church and become strong in him. And this is why in many churches, I don't exactly know how you guys do it here, but in many churches, the very first question we ask someone when they're being baptized, when they're immersed in the water is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? We want that affirmation, that first and foundational truth uh, to be the, 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 the very entry point for their life with God. And we want that to be true for our life and for our life as a church. 
We want this foundation because we, we know that this foundation, this truth, this principle is what's going to sustain them. That it's the foundation that a healthy church can be built on that will exist for generations and millennium. This is the thing that keeps each church on mission with God. That statement again, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what I want to leave us with today. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is what your truth, your church is built upon. That is what our faith is built upon. And so, God, I pray that uh, even today, Lord, if, if, if there are people that haven't made that confession, God, that they might for the first time proclaim, Jesus, you are the truth. You are the way. You are, you are the Son of the living God. God, we want that to be true. We want that to be true of each person here. We want that to be the foundation that this church is built upon. And so, God, we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen.